I'm going to start by going back and just reviewing a little tiny bit. I, I wrote it up ahead of time to make it quick. Reviewing what we've looked at last week. Now, what's interesting to me is I have now come to see when I went into next week's homework that we've actually already done next week's homework almost just by our conversations and the things that we did. Last week, I focused uh, with you on the subject of the rest of God, and I was showing you how, because I think that the, the conversation flow in, in chapters 3 and 4 about the rest of God and about the Sabbath rest that's mentioned and about Joshua and David and all these things that were brought up, they are complicated to us uh, Gentile-minded people who do, did not have the full impact of all that God had done through that nation Israel. So for us, we have to kind of slow down, go back, say, okay, now what was he talking about here, right? So we did a timeline, and we placed each of these significant points on a timeline. We saw that in the beginning God created, and he, that at the end of that he rested, right? And the reason he rested was not just because of the creation, but because all things had been provided. All the work had been done, okay? Later, when you go into scripture and you look in Ephesians chapter 1, you look in 1 Peter 1.20 and various other places as well. Um, I think about Romans 11 even. God had this whole plan of salvation all figured out from before the foundation of the world. He predetermined a plan and decreed it. And for those of us who've done some of those studies about the subject matter of decreeing things, like Daniel, for instance, and Ezekiel and so forth, when these kings made a decree, it was an absolute, it was irrevocable, right? And it, and it was going to happen. So this is what God did. He decreed a plan of salvation. God called, then God did what? He sat, right? He rested, he says, in in Genesis chapter 2. He also, we see him again in chapter, in Hebrews, and talk about this rest of us entering into it. So what we saw last week then was how God gave Israel, his nation, two pictures of rest. So what are those two pictures? The Sabbath rest and the land of rest. Now, in those two uh, pictures that he gave to the world even, but specifically to Israel, about rest, what does he teach us about rest in the Sabbath rest? Well, the first thing was that he rested after his work, correct? So what does that tell us about the idea of honoring the Sabbath and, and remembering it? That what? Exactly. It is his work. His work was finished. So that brings up to me the subject of grace. In other words, everything was provided for us by grace. We did nothing to deserve it, to earn it, to prepare for it. God did it all. He not only prepared from before the foundation a plan to redeem man, but he did so before man was even created and before man ever sinned, knowing that those things were going to come. He has this full omniscient knowledge that he was able to prepare before the foundation of the world for all things needful for man and for relationship with man. Pretty cool, huh? No wonder he says, honor the Sabbath day and, re and revere it and remember what I have done, that I did the work and rest Rest with me, rest in honor of me, rest remembering that I did the work. It's for you by grace. Okay, that was the first rest. Instead of works, instead of Faith instead of work. That's yes. exactly right. It's, it's, it's right, but it's 
The emphasis there is grace, that it's his work. Then he gave the Sabbath land rest, right? He gave them the land of rest. And what was the land of rest? How did they approach it? How were they allowed to enter into it? What must they do? By faith and obedience. Cool. Second quality to this concept about rest is it's, it's entered by faith, and that faith is demonstrated by obedience. Okay? So it's not the doing of obedience. That's the quality God was looking for. He was looking for the faith. Believe me. And so when we looked this week, and we'll talk about it more, but about those two passages in Numbers where we see them not being obedient, how God was angered by this. He wasn't angered by just the actions, but it was the lack of faith that they had not believed God, right? Even though God had done all these miracles before their eyes, he had presented himself over and over to them through the the cloud and the pillar that followed them, by parting the sea, by giving them those commandments, by providing water. And there was another picture that we looked at earlier in our study was about Jesus being the living water. And God showed them another picture of salvation that it would be through the living water. Who is who? Jesus, again. So we're seeing over and over so far in the book of Hebrews many, many pictures of God's redemptive work for man through his son, Jesus Christ, and he's explaining to these Hebrew-minded people what the trueness of those pictures are. Isn't that cool? That, for me, has been an amazing discovery. I did not see that the first time I studied Hebrews last time. I I had not quite gone that far with it. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yes. That's right. The two times that, okay, so this is kind of going back to our homework last week. For those of you who had a few other additional questions about that, we, we might could hold it for the end of class. But, but in essence, yeah, try to bring that up at the end when we have our open discussion time. And I'll go back over the rock and the, the disobedience of Moses and hitting that rock rather than speaking and what, what all the implications are of that, okay? We'll talk about that later. Um, Okay, so what we now know then by review is that we have two pictures that were given by God to them, the Sabbath rest and the land rest. But the true rest in those pictures is salvation through God's plan, which was Jesus. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 is all about. When you read through that you were predestined, you were chosen, all of them say in him, in him, in him, in him, or through him, through him, through him, through him. If you go into Ephesians chapter 1 and circle all of those references to in or through or by, you, what you see is the emphasis is Jesus is the plan. Jesus was what was predestined. Jesus is what was chosen out from before the foundation of the world. Not you and me, but, but Jesus. That is why it connects beautifully then with what we're looking at here as the rest of God. What does he say in chapter uh, 4? Verse 3, at the end of it, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why? Because they were being disobedient, unbelieving. Correct? And he says, although his works were what? Finished from when? 
from the foundation of the world. Did you wonder why he threw that foundation of the world statement in there in the middle of all this? It's because the rest was planned from before the foundation of the world. And the rest is found in the salvation plan by grace. You don't work for, you rest in the fact that God did it. And it's not, and it's not your works that do it. But the only way you're going to enter into that is how? By faith, and, which is demonstrated by obedience. Demonstrate. It's not and obedience, it's demonstrated by obedience. And I think there's a distinction in that. You need to understand it's not your being obedient that gets you saved. It's your faith entering into it by faith and believing God. And then your obedience is something that should be the external evidence. That's what we're going to camp on today when we start looking at the subject matter of this warning that he gives us in chapter um, 4. He says, take care, brethren, in verse 12. Did you, I want you to, oh, it's in chapter 3, sorry. Chapter 3, verse 12. He's, he opens chapter 3 uh, talking about this heavenly calling that he wants to bring them into. And he gives all kinds of information. Then he hits 12 and he says, but take care. So there's a warning in here, right? That there's a danger that you may not enter. So here's the, 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 one of the questions is, well, then who is he speaking to? Who is his audience? I thought he was writing to, quote, believers who are partakers of Jesus Christ. So how have we talked about this, this address? When he's addressing, he's writing a letter to who? Congregation. A congregation. If a letter was written to our pastor at this church and it was a congregational address and it said, Dear believers at the church of Austin Oaks, Austin, Texas, and then he began to write some words to us. And I bet poor Rob has had a few of those, right? <laughs> okay. But if somebody writes a letter to our church on the whole, is the address then only to true Christians? No. no. Who is it going to be to? To everyone. to everyone. It's a general. It's a general conversation to a congregational thing. Now, what I found interesting and a little complicated was how uh, it seems like sometimes they want to switch this and say, "Yeah, but it says true believers, and it says those who are partakers." And it says, "I'm going, yeah, but did you notice in two of those verses it says if?" So it caveats it. And he warns us, he says, take care, lest you not enter into that. So he's saying that there are some who may not, right? The other thing is this. We have the exact same issue when you do your study in the book of Revelation, where the letters are written to, quote, the churches. And yet five out of the seven letters are rebukes saying, if you don't repent, you won't be an overcomer and you won't get to enjoy the benefits of those heavenly promises. So to me, it's very clear that this is a, a, an address to a congregation. He, he does what all good pastors do as he stands in, in front of a church and gives a sermon. He addresses them as if they are Christians because they're all sitting there making a claim to being Christian, right? right? Just by their presence for the most part. I, I get it that there are some churches where they're seeker churches and you're dragging people, sometimes kicking and screaming, to the church. But on the whole, a church, when, you, when a pastor stands before his congregations to present, he speaks to them as if they are all believers. And he, he makes that assumptive sort of statement. But subliminally, is there not almost always a message in there of 
examine yourself. Make sure, right? And then he calls those who, if you, if you have a need or you feel uh, uh, the Holy Spirit moving you, won't you come forward at the end of this message and make a commitment to the Lord today? Why do you think he does that? Because there are some amongst them who may not have actually entered into this salvation. And he, he is rightly making that assumption. There may be some who haven't. Even some who maybe have gone to church all their life, it, which is exactly my story. I grew up in a church. I walked an aisle. I got baptized at the age of nine. I did not commit my life to God until I was in my 20s. I sat in a church week after week thinking I was saved, but when I stopped long enough to actually evaluate my life, I realized I had not actually made a commitment to God earlier in my life. It was made at the point in my life where my life transformed and became fully committed to God. Okay, so with all that said, that to me is what we're looking at here in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. He is giving them a warning. He speaks about the heavenly calling. God's calling you. He's calling all of you. And then he go, proceeds to go through and systematically explain how you can know who is and who is not. And he gives the two caveat verses in 6 and 14 that says, if you are, then this is going to be true about you. So when he makes those two statements in 6 and 14, let me just read them. But Christ was faithful as the son over his house, whose house we are, if, if we do what? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's the first if. If we hold fast, then we are his house. The second one is in 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So it's again, it's an if. Now, what, therefore, would you say is the opposite of that? If, if you're not holding fast, then concerning you being God's house, are you? The answer would be an obvious no. So if you're not holding fast, you are not God's house. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean to be God's house. And if you are not holding fast, then you are not a partaker of Christ. And so what we need to do is define what is a partaker also so that we clearly understand that. And we're going to do that this morning. Very interesting challenges if you thought that he was speaking just to isolated believers alone. It would be a pointless conversation, would it not? So to me, this is saying it's a congregational address, just like in the book of Revelation and other books as well, by the way. There are a lot of books in the, that are written. If you go back now and reread them, consider that these are congregational addresses, and that's why sometimes it sounds like he's saying you can lose your salvation, but he's not saying that at all. What he's actually saying to them, in essence, is to challenge them to examine their lives to say whether or not they're truly in the faith or not. Now, are there other passages that you can think of where you see God say, examine yourself, least you in some way be held responsible for basically defaming. Can you think of something? I think that the first district is in what was it first Corinthians I think said it in one of the Gospels. Yes. That's it. Okay, first Corinthians chapter eleven. Right. What is the picture in First Corinthians eleven? What are they doing there? Do you remember? They're eating the bread 
and drinking the cup. It's the, it's the, it's again, it's, it's a matter of fact, it's one of the central passages pastors go to when they're giving the Lord's Supper, right? And in there, there is a warning to us about taking that bread and drinking of that blood, that, that, that imagery picture of Jesus's blood, doing that in a way which, um, disrespects God and that that defiles God because you yourself are to examine yourself first least you drink condemnation unto yourself is what it says all right so examining ourselves then is an important thing so that's what our our basic first section here is going to be we're going to look at the the concept of examining ourselves and we're going to walk through it so let's start with those two if statements Let's begin with this first, this first one. So we are God's house. And then there's the word if. If it could be true and if it could not. Now Kay on her video says this if is that third class conditional uh, in the Greek. And that the if means if and it could be true or if and it, and it may not be true. It all depends upon the evidence that's seen as to whether it is true or it is not true. And so that is exactly what this author does. We are God's house if we do what? If we hold fast. And we're going to talk about holding fast to, to what it, when we get over into where our rest falls at. Okay, holding fast. And so this is in chapter 3, verse 6. So the question then comes, oops, I forgot my markers, and I left all my junk on your table. I'm so sorry. Okay, it's just you and you're spread out. Okay, I want to look at, <laughs> sorry, I want to look at um, who is God's house? So let's look at that. That's the question. Who is God's house? And you all looked at some verses. Who is God's house. So we looked at some cross-references this week, correct? And I forgot to write down what page we did those on. It was in day one, I think. Yes, it was. Day one. Page 74, if your homework. So you tell me by definition of those, each of those verses, let's go into 1 Peter, into Colossians, into Romans, and you tell me, how did you see the identifying uh, markers of being God's house? What is God's house? According to scripture, because we're going to let scripture interpret scripture here, right? We are God's house, okay? So we, that takes the, that takes the, this to, from who? It's we, we, we who do what? We who hold fast. Our confession. Okay, so that tells us, number one, we have a confession, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, about what is that confession, but we, have to, we are the ones who hold fast the confession. That's in Hebrews 3, 6, all right? So that's our first reference on who the we is. Okay, now you're jumping ahead. We are <laughs> partakers of Christ. We who are partakers of Christ, that's in 314. So we'll cover that again in a minute. We're going to go into detail on that because we're going to look at the word partakers also. So tell me first from your cross-references. 
Okay, it's a spiritual. And the, how do you become a part of that spiritual house according to 1 Peter? Through Jesus Christ. So through Jesus Christ, we become a spiritual house, right? Okay. Through Christ, a spiritual house. Isn't it interesting that here we are again, and that's First Peter, is that correct? First Peter, which one? Okay, two, four, and five, because there's another one in First Peter also. Um, okay, so in First Peter 2, 4, and 5, it says, we who are through Christ a spiritual house. That's who, what the house of God is. So now we identify that again. So again, we have another imagery here, don't we? That there's the idea of a house and that it's us, us who, us people, correct? All right. What, uh, any others? Right, so it's through, a, through, obviously, then through the message of a prophet, then that brings us into him, okay? So, again, it's back to we, the foundation being what they, what they brought, what good news, what gospel they brought, okay? Uh, through the prophets, through the apostles and prophets. And the implication there is we who believe them, Right? And this, which verse is that one in? Also First Peter? Okay, Ephesians 2. Um, yeah, and I, I kind of went even further, so let's say 19 and 20, okay? You guys are awfully quiet this morning, it seems like. <laughs> We're probably beating a dead horse on this, but we're, we're just showing you that through Scripture, consistently, the house of God is not a building, okay? It's not a facility. It's not a structure. It's not a, an apparatus of rules and laws and bylaws and a building and, you know, but rather, it's those who are engaged together through a spiritual nature. Basically, it's through belief. It's spiritual. It's those who are partakers of Christ. It's those who have a confession of Christ. And in that, basically, you can bring it all down to one word. Let's see, where is it? I thought I had it up here. Yeah, believed. It's those who have believed that message has been brought to us through those different agencies. And that's what unites us to become a spiritual house. Isn't it the body of Christ? It is the body. Okay, so wasn't there one that we looked at that says it's the body of Christ? I thought there was one. We are his body. And which, where are you at? I'm sorry, say the reference again. Colossians, that's right, in Colossians. Okay. So it's we, the, the body of Christ. The body of Christ, believers, 
the brethren. Colossians four fifteen and 16, okay? Yes, that's what we just did. That was the first one. It's as being a spiritual house. That's correct. Exactly. So I'm going to do this just in order to make sure we see it real clearly. I, this is how, whoops, that's dried out. I did it, I did it this way. Okay? So it's people, correct? It's not, it's not uh, a building, but it's people. It's not a, a function of an agency. It's a people. It's the people of God. And actually, when we become the body of Christ, how do we, how do we become the body of Christ is what we're going to address next. It's by the fact that we are these partakers. So, so it says, therefore, we are partakers. And have, did you notice how there becomes a link then between verse 6 and verse uh, 14 as being a semantic thing? It's almost a synonym. He's saying you are God's house. You are partakers. And he unites those two concepts together by doing what he did, right? 3.6, so it says, um, we have become partakers of Christ. And again, the if, we hold fast. Okay, so that's in 3.14. Now, let's look at that word partakers and see how it was defined. What is a partaker? What is a partaker? Now, I know um, uh, Carrie early on gave us a little bit of a definition of that word partaker. At this point, have any, have any of the rest of you done a research on that word partaker? Good. Give me some of your definitions. How did you see that defined for you in the Greek? Okay, you're going to slip that right in. A companion, a sharer. Very good. A partner, a sharer, or a companion. Okay? Now, very interesting because when you think about the idea of companion, that word companion came up early in the study uh, that Jesus is above his companions. Correct? All right. All right, so there's a companion, partaker, fellow, one who shares in or participates in, a partner, again, correct? And then if you keep going with the Greek, it's, it, it's a little bit of a linking, but eventually you come to another interpretation out of, one, out of the um, Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains. Okay, that particular book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's another Greek word study, and it does it, it links, it links, it links. And at the root of this word, it links it to, to one of its um, basic points, which is it's, it's to eat together, to associate in a meal. Does it, is anybody going ding, 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 ding? What, is, what are you dinging on? Covenant, covenant, covenant. In covenant making, one of the qualities or one of the practices of making covenant is to eat a meal, which is why we participate in the Lord's Supper, because it's a meal. And what does the meal do? It, it, it symbolically, by picture, 
shows us something. What does it show us? It tells us ultimately we are entering into covenant with them. And when you take the bread and you eat it, what happens? You make it part of you, become a partaker of. And it takes two. If symbolically the bread is Jesus and I eat it, what happens to Jesus and me? To become one. Isn't that beautiful? So in that imagery is the word partaker. So a partaker, in, a, in the idea of partaker, to become one. So I'm just going to put the, the uh, 3353 was the number of the Strong's. The word is M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. It means partake. It means partner. It means companion. Uh, it means sharing, to share in. And basically, it, it, then it takes you down to the next point, which is um, to eat together. It doesn't mean to eat together, but it, at the root of it, there's, that's the imagery of it, to eat together or to associate in a meal. Mm-hmm. That's right. An identifying marker of who you are by participating in it. So that's what a partaker is by definition. So then we went and we looked in a couple of uh, cross-references about what, what a partaker is. Um, let's start, though, like we did up here and start with the Hebrews references. Tell me what you see in Hebrews. Go, go to verses, uh, chapter 3, verses like 17, 18, 19, and all the way through the first part of chapter 4, verse 6. And tell me out of there, what do you see uh, a partaker being identified as? Because we know that this partaker is one who's going to enter into the rest of God, correct? Okay, so what must a partaker do? They believe. And not only do they believe, but by, because of belief, then what, how is belief demonstrated? By obedience. They believe and obey. Basically, that gospel, correct? The gospel that's said in verse four, uh, uh, chapter 4, he says, um, in verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also, but the word they heard did not do what? It did not profit them. So for us, we believed and we obey, and therefore it gave us what? Profit. It profited us and gained profit. It made profit to us. Um, and that's, we see that, I'm just going to put Hebrews, I'll start with 19 and go through 4, 6 maybe or something like that, Okay. Now, go to your cross-references. You looked in John 6, John 14, Romans 8, Colossians 1. Cross-references, that's the next. Just flip your page over in your homework. The first day we looked at what, how do you define the house of God. And then on the next part of that homework, we looked at what is a partaker. 
That's on page 75. Okay, so tell me what you see there as a partaker. What did you determine? When you made your little list, what did you see? Who's a partaker? Did you guys do your homework? <laughs> I'm just like going, this is like the easy part, guys. Later we're getting into tough stuff. This is simple stuff here. Okay. Okay. Okay, so who is a partaker? In there, what we see is a picture then of that in covenant uh, observances, basically. We symbolically eat his flesh, and we are reminded then that two become one. We become partakers. So what she took us to in John 6, and this is where I think she went into on her video. She goes a lot in detail on this particular passage. But Jesus says, what are you a partaker of? And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says, if anyone eats my flesh, he will live forever, right? Now, this can actually, believe it or not, this can actually be a controversial passage right in here because there are some who actually believe you must eat the flesh of Christ, which to me, logically even, uh, it's pretty difficult to do that since Christ is not present with us any longer, right? <laughs> so obviously, this is not saying a literally eating of his flesh. When Jesus stood before his disciples, and yes, when he stood before his disciples at that supper, at, what did he hand them to eat? Did he pull off his arm or his finger or a piece of his leg or his earlobe and hand it to them? No, what did he hand to them? Bread. And he said to them of this bread, this you do in remembrance of me. So to me that clear, and I may not be, I may be speaking to the choir here. This may be a, a unnecessary for those of you here. But I do know that this can be a, a problem denominationally. There are some groups that say you literally, there must be a transformance spiritually of this bread to actually become the, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that you are literally eating. And that is not what Jesus meant. It's very clear from Scripture that's not what he meant because he handed them bread and said, eat this and do it in remembrance of me. So here he's saying in, in the Gospel of John that those who eat of it will live forever. And he says, I am the bread of life. And in doing that, when they eat it, they are partaking of his of his body symbolically. All right, so that's in John chapter 6, uh, 48 to 51. John 14, 23, and there's some others in there probably too. John 14, yes. He's talking about the spirit of truth in there. I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it, it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because why? He abides in you. So in that idea that then if his spirit, God's spirit, Christ's spirit, abides in us, we have then become a partaker of him, correct? By that. So in John chapter 14, it says that you abide in him, but how do you abide in him? How do you receive that spirit? What is the external sign that gives that, 
that indicates that you are a partaker. You have kept my commandments. He who loves me keeps my commandments. Do you see again? It's an evidential point. He's saying the evidence that you actually love me is that you obey me. Okay? You love me, so you love me. And keep my commandments. And then um, he says, we will come in and abide with you, that we will make our abode with you. Okay, and that's in John 14. I just put verse 23, but it, there's a bunch of verses there. It's, it's actually starts in 16. I covered six, pretty much 16 to 24. But, I mean, in there you get the essence of what you need information-wise about the idea of him making his abode with you so that two become one and you become a partaker of him. And it's done by, by loving him, which is expressed through obedience. And when that is made, and when you see that in a person, then you can know that God's, God's spirit abides in them. And therefore they have become a partaker of Christ. The, part, the one who is a partaker has the spirit of God in them. Pretty cool, yes. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, I wouldn't say a covenant, but, but it is who, you know... Um, the evidence of who you are faithful to is witnessed by who you obey is what God says over and over in his word. The one that you obey is the one that you love. And so he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments and then we will make our abode with you. We meaning God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And he does that by the spirit, which he gives to us who love him. It is why when you go back then to Hebrews, if we take this information and lay it back into Hebrews, he's saying why were they not able to enter into the land of rest? Because they were disobedient and unbelieving. But you could actually reverse it. They were unbelieving and therefore they were disobedient. Because they were unbelieving, they were disobedient. And since the picture of entering into God's rest is given by them entering into that land. He forbid them to go into the land because he was laying down a picture that says, this is how you enter into my rest by obedience, which is prompted because you have faith. You believe me and therefore you obey me. Therefore, I'm going to let you enter into the rest where you're going to be a picture of my relationship with you. They were unable. And yet, it's very interesting, the command was given to them to be obedient, right? And so the expectation was that they could now. Did some of them uh, obey him? Yeah. Who, were the, who were the ones that showed obedience? Caleb and Joshua and even Moses to a point. Although Mo Moses at some point also gets himself into trouble for a, different, a little bit different reason. Although it still was disobedience, um, 
it's a kind of another storyline. This is where you can muck up the waters if you try to lay them together. But with the people, the people's problem was they were unbelieving and therefore they were disobedient. They began to grumble. They began to uh, complain about him and literally to revile against him, against God's anointed leader, right? Yes, Lisa. takes you back to Ezekiel, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the fidelity that is, you know, we go into a covenant relationship, but it's just marriage all over again that we have to stay faithful to the end. That's exactly right. And what's really cool about it is if you actually really do believe him, and, and I understand that individually we can fall into, into individual sins, but... And that's, a, again, that's a whole other subject matter. And you have to go in and study out things like First John because that habitual sin is something you should not see in the life of a Christian. But the big picture of a, per, a Christian's life would, should be one of faithfulness to God, committed to what you say you believe, and because you say that you believe that, therefore you order and discipline your life according to what you say you believe. Um, I can remember years back when they used to teach a lot of visual aid kinds of sermons to the youth groups, and one of the guys, he took, he brought a chair to the front of the room, and he said, so what is this? Describe this to me. And the class began to say, this is a chair. I said, well, what do you do with the chair? Well, you sit in it. And so, so you believe this is really a chair? Yes. Well, then sit in it. And if you will sit in it, then you really do believe it's a chair and that it's a chair which does all the things of, of which it's designed to do. Okay, so then, he, then you take that imagery then and place it in Jesus Christ. Who is this? This is Jesus. What did he do for you? He died for your sins. How powerful is he? Oh, he's all-powerful because he's God. Has he planned for you? Does he love you? Do you, do you believe he's going to watch over you as he said? Yes. Then sit down. But if you don't believe him, then what do you do? You walk your own way. You continue in disobedience. You continue to run your own life. You continue to have rebellion, which is perpetual right? It's, it's overtly perpetual sometimes. And sometimes the most overt kinds of sins are the things which are, are the indicators to the world around you that you haven't actually put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right? So here we have an, a picture that he's given to us here. Who is God's house and who are, what is a partaker? And, how, and, it's, and what is the caveat? That if, in fact, you are God's house, and if, in fact, you are a partaker, translate what a, what a house of God and a partaker of God is. Okay. So, and one who holds fast to the confession, who is a person that holds fast to this confession that we're speaking of? How do we call them? What do we call those people? Believers. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You're saved. So it's talking about who's saved, who's actually a believer, who's actually in, in faith. It's those who hold fast. And then he gives us a, a rendition of the things that, of which they are to hold fast to. Okay. So now, I have a part two somewhere here. This is the wrong one. Okay. 
All right, so then he says to us, okay, so who's the partaker and who's house God? Then the next one we want to look at then is in 1 Corinthians 11. And we talked about it just a little bit earlier. What must a man do then? Why, and why is this challenge given to us? Why does God perpetually, as we have come to see this week, over and over and over in his word, throw out cautionary statements to people who are sitting in God's house and either thinking that they are a Christian or believing that they are, or claiming to be at least, why does he keep throwing out these questions to people saying, you need to examine yourself? So what does he say in 1 Corinthians 11? A man must examine himself, right? And he gives the warning, and what is the warning? Go to 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 32. Aha, uh-huh. what kind of judgment? Is this just a slap on the wrist because you've been bad, or is this something else? Okay, so he's saying some have even fallen asleep. But he also, so he who eats and drinks, drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So in this case, he is speaking to Christians in the 1 Corinthians 11 one. And he's saying of those Christians, even you are not free from discipline if in fact you do not judge rightly your body. So he's making the inference here that Christians as well as unbelievers both are responsible to God to continually examine ourselves to make sure that we are walking appropriately to the confession that we are making, right? And so some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. Does everyone in here understand what that's saying? Some are weak, meaning weak. Some are sick. Some of them mean have physical sickness, right? And some have fallen asleep, meaning what? God has actually taken their life. So, so what it's saying to us is that um, some Christians can actually ha- sin unto death. They can, God can say, look, you, have, you are defiling my holy name to the point that I am going to take your life from you. Right? Okay. So in here what we see is there, there is in chapter um, 3 and 4 of Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians 11, he addresses a warning, one to the believer, one to the possible believer or one who maybe thinks that they are a believer, but he's saying, I want you to examine yourself to make sure, correct? So he goes, let's go back to that Hebrews one and look in there again at um, Hebrews chapter three. Um, Let's see. Wrong chapter. So I'm going to go to, okay, 12, chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, in other words, collectively, congregationally, examine yourself to make sure that not any one of you, right, has an evil, what kind of heart? Unbelieving heart. So what does this person do who's the house of God? They have a believing heart, correct? Same thing with those who are partakers. They have believed the message and therefore received the Holy Spirit. It, they only enter into this partaking through covenant and only the one who believes enters into this, correct? So here he's saying it's an unbelieving heart. So who is that? Christian or non-Christian? That is a non-Christian. 
It's a clear statement that he's talking here in this particular moment of an unbeliever. Even though the letter has been written to a congregation, the Hebrews, he is speaking to the possibility that among those believers there are some who are actually unbelievers. It seems very clear to me that that is what he's doing. And then as a matter of fact, he follows it in verse 13 with a statement. What does he say? Okay, encourage. Now, interesting, isn't it? How he follows, examine yourself, and then he says, encourage yourself. Now, can you see a systematic flow of thought in this? The examine yourself applies to who? To yourself. Then he says, encourage one another. Now, what is he saying to do? How is encouragement going to be expressed in the context of this flow of thought? What must I do if I'm going to encourage you not to have an evil, unbelieving heart? Okay, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to probably engage in conversation with you about what you actually believe, correct? What you say you believe, okay, that would be one. Now, how would I maybe, what would prompt me to want to say to you, Don, tell me what you really believe about who Jesus is. What would make me want to have that conversation with you? There you go. My observing that your life is not demonstrating the obedience of faith, Right. right? So he follows it. He starts by saying, basically, take care, at least there be in you an unbelieving heart. So examine yourself. And then he says, and now that that job is done... Now you're ready to move to the next step and say, now encourage others. And the only way to do that is, what must I do? I must look at your lives and draw some kind of a judgment. And I know people hate this. Oh, don't judge anyone else's faith. It's not your job to judge their faith. No, it's not my judge to condemn or to approve. But it is my judgment to make an assessment as to whether or not what I see in them is true faith or not true faith. It is my, it would, it would be ridiculous for a parent raising a child to never address their problems, right? It would be ridiculous. Yeah, go ahead. That's exactly what I'm saying. That. No, I'm saying to hold each other accountable. So the result is going to be twofold. And what's really, really, really cool about this is move forward with me to chapter 12 of Hebrews. This is actually going to be addressed again. That's why it's so important, I think, in the foundation of this, we are, we're, that we get our, our full understanding of who the audience is, what it is that he's bringing up here, what is the rest of God, what is that, that rest that we're talking about truly, so that when you see all these other inferences made, that you don't, again, go back to saying, okay, now I'm confused again. Can you lose your salvation or can't you, right? Which is one of the problems with Hebrews over and over. Okay, so go to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, There's some verses. I think it starts in 7. Let me go back in mine as well. So I'm ready with you. Okay, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. So here he's saying strengthen, where he says in this chapter, he says, he said, uh, um, uh, encourage one another. Same 
concept, correct? Take care to strengthen them, in this case, to encourage them. And what does he say in there about on the whole? Can anybody kind of remember the gist of what's going on there? It's about disciplining in this case. This one is, is applying to the discipline of those who are in your life. And actually what's interesting is the discipline can be applied to either a believer or an unbeliever. If, in fact, you're a believer, the discipline is to do what for your life? Uh-huh. Right. To correct any error, to correct any flaws, to get you back onto the path of righteous living, correct? If I see something in you or you see something in me, then we're to call one another into account. That is how it says to encourage one another. So encouragement does not always mean to come up and say, man, Carrie, you're such a great Christian. I just love seeing everything you do is just so perfect. That's not, although that's nice to do. We should do that too. But, (laughs) but, and when we see them doing well, we should definitely comment on that but the other quality of it and what is going on in this is this passage talking about that in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is it saying give them attaboys pat them on the back for good works as a matter of fact is this actually in chapters 3 and 4 talking to a believer no it's not he's actually addressing the unbeliever he's saying those who might have an evil unbelieving heart He's actually saying in this case, we're looking at the, in chapters 3 and 4, his primary, primary focus is make sure they've actually come into the rest of God. And if they haven't, encourage them. So the encouragement in chapter 4 is going to be toward the unbeliever to encourage them because what is that unbeliever doing? Where is he geographically as far as this letter is concerned? Where is he? Well, we know he's, he's spiritually, we know he's laughed, but where is he geographically? He's sitting where? He's sitting in the church. So apparently he either has the thought that just showing up to church does it by just do, you know, being there is enough. Well, yeah, later on, that's exactly, it's not assembling together. You're so what's really cool is we don't want to make total um, decisions about everything yet because we've got a lot of Hebrews to go through yet, okay? But we are laying some foundational principles. So what I want to do is get the doctrinal points down in our mind that with every single inference that's made as we move through this book, we need to determine who's his audience, what is the subject in that particular point, who's he addressing, and therefore isolate, take your pieces, because another point I brought up to you in review is, uh, or about doctrines of this particular book is that there are three verb tenses that are used about salvation, correct? There is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Each of them in the scriptures, however, are often caveated through the idea of salvation in general. And in the English language, it does not distinguish. So you have to look at the passage to determine which is being spoken of. I'm saying the same thing is true here in this book on the whole. We have to determine when is he speaking to about unbelievers and about entering into justification, or when is he speaking to the general congregation about sanctification? And there's going to be a distinguishing mark, is there not? So sometimes, so every single time we move along, you have to... Make yourself a mental note, which subject matter are we talking about? Justification or sanctification or glorification? Lots of glorification references in this particular book, actually, aren't there? 
where it talks about the kingdom to come, right? And um, um, bringing many saints to glory or many sons to glory, exactly. That's speaking about glorification. Next week in your homework, Kay has broken down. and I, I, Let's just flip there real quick so that I can point this out to you and show you something. Because I'm going to add a little piece to what her homework tells you to do. Next week in, in page 80, I think it's 82. Nope, might be. No, it's 84. It's on day three uh, to five of your homework. And the subject for next week is going to be, again, the rest of God. So if you think you've got any additional questions, next week is going to be your week to actually uh, iron this out a little bit. She says in, in her instructions, there are, there are basically there are three different interpretations of the rest referred to in Hebrews. I would actually say there's four because she misses the first one. But she says there's the faith rest life. To me, that's sanctification that's being spoken of there. The faith rest is usually described as the realization that our walk is to be lived out practically. So that's sanctification, right? That isn't how, you, how you're walking out your faith is not how you got saved, is it? It's not what you're doing that got you saved, is it? No, it's what Jesus did, and that's the true rest of God because God completed it from before the foundation of the world and rested on the seventh day. So there's actually one more. So you might want to, at the top of your page, put, put on there, number one, justification rest. Because that's another rest that she doesn't seem to distinguish. And I think that's what chapter 3 and 4 is talking about, justification rest. It's saying you need to examine yourself to make sure you're in that faith. And then number two, encourage one another. And the only way you're going to do that is if you observe about one another maybe some uh, um, inconsistencies about how you should be walking and what you really are doing. And therefore, you're going to have to look around at your brother and sister in Christ after you've done your own personal evaluation of your life, making sure that you get yourself right. Romans covers this, doesn't it? Pull the plank out of your own eye first, correct? My expert on Romans. Isn't that Romans? Oh, it's... I thought it was in, oh, okay, I'm in the wrong book. I thought it was Romans 7 or something. Okay, all right, good, good. All right, I'm wrong. So Matthew, but I know it's in the Bible. <laughs> so I got the right book. <laughs> and I got the plank part right, right? Okay, so he talks about the plank, though, and pulling the plank out of the eye. And he says, pull the plank out of your own eye first. Then you will see clearly. He doesn't say, pull the plank out of your own eye and forget everybody else. He says, pull the plank out of your own eye first, and then you will see clearly to help your brother, right? So here in Hebrews, that's what he's actually doing for us. In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, he's saying, you make sure you've entered into rest, and then you can encourage one another, right? But he says, first of all, examine yourself, lest there be anyone among you who does not have that, that faith, but rather has an evil, unbelieving heart. So in day three of your homework, justification, rest, it, she doesn't address it, but that is another rest that is in the book of Hebrews. But no, wait a minute, not in her instructions. 
Her instructions, she says number A, the faith rest. That's sanctification because that's talking about the walk. Okay, then she blended the two, Carrie. She shouldn't have. Okay, so what I'm saying is do not blend the two together because I think they're distinctive. There's the justification rest that, it, that Hebrews discusses. Then there is sanctification, which means you should examine yourself to see whether your walk, which is sanctification, right? That rest, if you're resting in God in truth, your faith walk will exhibit that. It will demonstrate that you truly do believe God. That's what Hebrews is saying. So I would just add that in there, and I did that to clarify that there are, that there are three verb tenses in Scripture. Now, she breaks down the millennial rest and the eternal rest as two different rests. I would actually put those two together and put that as glorification because your glorification begins at the millennial kingdom and goes into the eternal kingdom. So I just would break it down a little differently than she did. Is anybody, uh, you don't have to believe me. You just have to reason it through for yourself and consider it. But if there are three verb tenses for salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification, the rest of God should fit in each one of those three categories. Because in essence, your rest is salvation. And that salvation is provided through Jesus. And Jesus was what was predestined before the foundation in order to provide that rest, which is why God rested on the seventh day. Right. Yes, that's what she's saying. And in doing that, she splits glorification number three into two points and then says one, two, three, and she skips justification. I think it should have been justification, sanctification, glorification, those three rests. And if you break it down that way, you're not going to get, otherwise what you're doing, she's convoluting it. And I think this is why I got frustrated with her video for today's lesson. When you mix justification and sanctification and, and, and join them together, then you're not declaratively, you're not slicing apart what God did by grace and what we do by obedience in, as a result of, of what he did for us. You have to, I think you have to split the hairs on this and clearly define in your mind justification, sanctification, glorification. Is everyone kind of following my thought? I'm giving that to you to help you, not to confuse you. So I want you to just have that because I found that to be, to me, a flaw in the, the, the way the thinking is on this. By simply adding in, number one, justification rest, and then marking number two, the faith rest, as sanctification on here. Then you can follow the rest of her instructions fine. Okay? Probably. Maybe. Well, and in which case that makes sense, but that's not what she said. She said there are three different interpretations of the rest. And those three rests are justification, sanctification, glorification. That's what scripture teaches. And she broke it up by a timeline. Carrie, that's a good, that's a good point. She obviously went by a timeline. Okay, so now with that all said, we can go back now to looking at this encouraging right? The implication here is that we are our brother's keeper. Boy, is that not also taught in scripture? You are your brother's keeper. 
the world would like to say to you, mind your own business. Don't try to tell other people what to do. Don't correct them when they're in sin. Don't try to point out that, that the lifestyle they're living, they're sleeping with their boyfriend or living with some guy or, or cheating on their taxes or beating their wife or, or spewing filthy trash out of their mouth day and night. I mean, you're not supposed to correct other people because who are you after all? Aren't you a sinner too? Right? Yes, we but, are all sinners. Yes, we are. But is that what God teaches us? No, it is not. Okay. Hebrews even goes a step further in, in chapter 10 and it's stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So it isn't just don't do bad stuff. That's right. It's a, it's it goes all the way across. You are absolutely right, Craig. He is saying that it's not just encourage one another to point out the bad stuff, but it's also encourage one another. At a boy, Carrie, you did good. I love the way you're you know, loving people and, and keeping truth right and whatever. Those are all important. But what, what I think is really sad about Christendom is we have gotten to the place where we say it is not our place to look around, to observe another person's life and make a judgment call to help them. Because they see it as judgmental. But they don't, well, I'll tell you who's the ones complaining about that. The ones who are not in faith. And they don't want you to tell them that the only way to God is Jesus. They don't want to hear that. And they also do not want you to be judgmental about things like issues like abortion and homosexuality, which are such hot topics. Why? Because the righteousness of God exposes by his light the unrighteousness of ungodly people. Well, and you know what God calls it? Encouragement. (laughs) He says, encourage one another. Okay, that was going to be my good point, Carrie. Let me just finish my reading here. Okay, so we are our brother's keeper. We are responsible to be alert to external and visible signs seen in the lives of our fellow brethren. We are responsible for that. This requires that we make some measure of judgments for their benefit and welfare. So in other words, it's to be done in love, right? Okay, What? but guess what? Then I went to the next point. But it also means this, that we will accept correction ourselves or challenges from others right and then what are we to do with that when someone comes to you or me and corrects us and says I don't see you living very godly well you call your how many times have I heard that from unbelievers especially well you call yourself a Christian and I see you do this and this and this right and they're really critical and hateful they're not trying to encourage you into a better faith walk they're just being critical but if a Christian comes to you and says look I see you having this attitude or this unforgiveness or this disobedience, whatever it is, and they want, and they're trying to help you and say, look, you can't do that. That just, that sends a mixed signal to the whole world. They, you say that you love the Lord, but you're not living it. You're not behaving the way that God would want you to. It's you know, not in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, the fruit of the Spirit. There you go, the fruit of the Spirit. So it means we will accept correction or challenges from others, and then what do we do with it? Once the correction comes, what do we do with it? Do we just say, okay, you're right? Examine ourselves. There you go. Back to step one. Go back to the Lord and examine yourselves again and go to God, evaluate whether we need to repent in any behavior or attitude that we may have. Scripture says it this way. takes all things captive to the foot of the cross. Everything that comes to you, because sometimes people will be critical, and that's all they're being. They're just being critical. They don't like your light, so they react. That's true. 
right? So what you have to do is take, but on the other hand, David, I remember a passage years back we did in this study where David said someone called him a dog and something else I can't remember. Do you remember that, Susan? And it was David says, how do I know that God didn't send him with his mean mouth but did so to correct me? So you have to listen to it all. What you do with it, whether it comes through the critical um, venue of a person that you know just is intention is their intentions are evil, or whether it comes through a godly person who could be right or maybe is not right. In all of those scenarios, you take whatever they've given you and you take it before the Lord. And now you go into personal reflection. And you say to the Lord, Lord, is there something I need to fix? Am I, in a, you know, if, even if I'm given the appearance of evil, if that was not my intention, even that, even though I didn't mean to do it, it's an unintentional sin, I need to still correct that. Correct? Yes. Because if you're given the appearance of evil, that can also be sin. If you've been made aware of it and then you refuse to fix it. Because you're going, well, that's their problem, not mine. Well, and you're also being cold-hearted toward a sensitivity of the whole point to our faith walk is that we draw people to the light and that we honor God so that he gets glory, not revilement, right? That we not blaspheme the, the holy name of God. So this is a great study, guys. We are going to encourage one another. So he says to us in verse 12, take care. So there's a warning, right? Take care. That there not be an evil, unbelieving heart. So now we're back to the unbeliever, correct? Thinking, so switch your mind from you, the believer. Let's switch over to the unbelieving heart. He's saying, examine and also now encourage. Encourage one another, lest there be among you someone who has an evil, unbelieving heart. Lest you be the one who has that evil, unbelieving heart. He's saying examine yourself so that you know whether, whether you, you are or not. That's in Hebrews 3.12. Then he says now, um, calling, basically calling one another to account. I'm just going to add this in here. It's not really a verse. Calling one another into account is what is being talked about here when he says encourage i'm giving you a, an interpretation here on this okay this is my interpretation just so you know that all right now if you belong to him then what's going to happen if you belong or if you are in rest with god what? Well, let's go in and look at those cross-references on page 76. Number six was one of your questions. First John 2, John 8, Matthew 10. Uh, then you, we can go back then into Hebrews uh, 6 to 11 as well, uh, which is an in, further down the road, but we can look at it. Okay, what do you see in First John 2, 19 that says, how can you tell if someone really is in faith or in rest or not. If you belong, if you're in rest, then you will remain. You will remain. Now, what he's saying there, which is really cool, that was in uh, 
Okay, well, this is 1 John. I'm in the wrong verse in my brain. Okay, 1 John uh, 2.19. They went out from us. They were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that what? Not all who are with us, among us, are really of us. Boy, if that's not a clear message that this congregation he's writing to, this is exactly what he's saying in Hebrews. He's writing to a congregation, and he's saying, there might be some among us who are really not of us, right? You will remain if you are, if you are in rest, or if you are in his rest, you, you will remain. And there are some among us, who are not of us. They are not in the house of God. They are not partakers of Christ. That's in 1 John 2, 19. And I want to tell you, 1 John is awesome. If you yourself need a, a, basically a structured way of sitting down for you to personally have time with God and evaluate your life, you know, because he's saying to us in the beginning of this that we need to examine ourselves, whether you are or whether you aren't, well, sometimes I need a checklist kind of to help me say, well, how do I know? How, how do I know? Obviously, because the whole point of this book here is saying that the only way you're going to know is the external signs, correct? Right. There is no way I can look at you, although I sure wish God had done this. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been cool if he'd have given us a nice little bright cross etched on the forehead or something that glows out of us or, or something so that or, or a little floating cross over our heads that everywhere we go people would see or a crown or a cloak or something it would have been so awesome if he had done that but he didn't instead what does he say examine the outside now there's a passage that jesus uses in matthew what does he say about a tree you know a tree by its fruit and a good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree does not produce good fruit. So again, it's, ba it's back to you needing to evaluate. So in other words, there's external signs, and that's what we're talking about right now. You need to, all we can do, we cannot examine the heart. Hebrews says God does. His word penetrates to the marrow. He can even discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. But can I? All I can do is look and, and say, um, their behavior shows me the intent of their heart is this or that. And that's what he's saying in here. We are to examine one another. There are some among us, however, who are not of us. Therefore, we need to be encouraging one another th that we would point them back into that rest of God and hopefully draw them back into either repentance or coming into salvation, one or the other. Correct? Okay, John 8, what do we see? Again, it's pretty much the same thing, right? If you continue in my word, if you continue in God's word, so I would pretty much at this point by external evidence, I would absolutely say that everyone in this room believes in the Lord and has a, are partakers and are of house, God's house. Why? Because the external, yay, we could give ourselves around because the external, all, only based on this one external sign. Now, this is not the, the grand sum total of it, right? Yeah. So back to what I was going to say about 1 John. 1 John is a great 
checklist because in 1 John, it says these things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that verse because what that tells us is God wants us to know. He doesn't want it to be a mystery to us. And you can't totally rely on just your emotions, can you? Because sometimes you can feel like you're such a failure that God would never love you or forgive you. And you feel like you fail God in such a big way through some mishap, through you, generally for me, it's opening my big mouth and saying something I shouldn't have, right? But, I mean, but for some people, it has to do with some kind of action in their life, some kind of behavior that they commit over and over, right? Or, um, or an attitude about something, or even a, a misunderstanding in Scripture, not knowing everything or whatever. And so they, they live their life disobediently. But God says that you can know. These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. So go through 1 John, starting in chapter 1. He's going to say he wants us to have fellowship with him, and and they want us to have fellowship with them also, these writers, with one another as believers in the household of faith. And he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes right into start saying, these are the things that are going to indicate whether or not you are in faith. And he starts with repentance of sin. He says, you recognize sin, you confess sin, and God, by the way, is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Then he goes on and he talks about, uh, there's things like obedience to his word. Um, There's the right confession, that is that Jesus is the Christ. Um, What were some of the others? Um, Keeping his commandments, which is what this one's saying. If you obey him, then you love him. So you can go in there, there's there's, uh, a lot of fruit. Yes, there's all these external fruits, and that's all we can go by, guys. We don't have a bright light on our forehead that says, you have believed, and God has given you his spirit. The only way you and I can know is if we examine ourselves based on what God tells us are the evidences, the fruit. So you do look for the fruit in a person's life. That is one of the reasons it's so important why why the letters to the churches encourage us to be about doing good deeds. And working for the Lord. And he says, that's important, but don't forget your first love. And if you've abandoned your first love and you're only about works, there's a problem. And he says, repent of that. So the letter to that particular church of Ephesus, he's telling you, works are good and you need to be doing works, but don't let them replace your love for God. So there's this balance in there, right? First John's going to take you through and show you all the ways that you can have a checklist to say, am I in the faith or not? I love First John for that reason. It gives you the assurance of your salvation. But it will also encourage you. If there are things that you're not doing, it'll help you say, ooh, I need to be doing those things. Why? What do we want to do in the world around us? We want to be a witness. We want other people to see that we actually love the Lord. So if you're not being generous, you're not being loving, you're not being obedient, you're not making the right confession, you're cowarding and holding back the gospel from people, those are all indicators, and those are things that we should be engaged in. He's not saying those things save you. He's saying that's the sanctification rest of God that you've entered into. If, in fact, you were justified, the sanctification is the natural outflowing of it. It should be. And we need to discipline ourselves to be engaged in those things which God says are the signs that he wants us to have. 
Pretty cool, huh? So in fact, think about Israel. He, he put Israel on the land and gave them all kinds of laws and rules and rituals and practices and feasts, all those things to follow. Why? Did those things save them? No. We're going to find out in Hebrews later. None of those things saved them. But what was the point to them? And what was the point for the world, uh, for Israel to be living in this distinctive way? That they have a holy God, that they would see that this is how holiness desires for us, what holiness desires for us. And they would be so distinctive that the world would take notice of how blessed they are, how happy they are, how joyful they are, and they would want it too. Well, they were supposed to be a priesthood. Well, and First Peter says about us what? Well, that's the house. We are royal priesthood. And a holy nation, a called out people unto God. We are now the priesthood of God. Yes. Right. That's exactly right. That's what she was saying. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Okay, so we see you continue in God's word. Encourage one another that you would, if you continue in God's word, then you are God's house. You are a partaker. That's in John 8, 31. Okay. Go to Matthew 10. This one's very interesting. It's a slight change in the conversation here about what the subject thing, where before it has everything to do with continuing the word and being obedient, but he does warn that there are going to be some among you who are not, and he tells you to pay attention to one another so that we can encourage one another to all be in faith. And then he says, some are not, however. And then he says, but you're going to continue in the word if you are in faith. And now this one, he starts talking about the enemies of the world, right? And that... For those who are in faith, there will be enemies, correct? So when the enemies come against a true believer, one who is a partaker, what? They will endure to the end. And it's really cool because there's passages in Scripture where it says, do you remember when, and it's going to come up in Hebrews, right? Do you remember when you endured such conflicts and and afflictions that that came against you and you stood faithfully? Don't don't throw away that great reward. What Corinthians ten thirteen is also there. Yes. Okay, so Matthew ten says you will stand. If you are, uh, you will endure to the end. And it's talking about persecution and suffering. And it can be either one, persecution or just suffering. In other words, what? what take it to your personal life. Are there, have there been times in your life when your life has gotten so rough, so sad, so difficult that you've looked toward God and said, God, what are you doing? God, are you even there? Do you hear? Do you care? I mean, I think most of us can, if we're honest, we can say there have been times when we have faced that. And what this, what's so cool is, guess what? You're all still sitting here. <laughs> even though you may have gone through that at some point, what happened in the end? We you remained. 
you remained. And what is that evidence of? That you are a partaker, that you are God's house. That you are, that, that's exactly what it is. Isn't that exciting? Does that not encourage you? Have we been encouraged this morning? Yes, encouraged. All right. All right, now he says um, in Hebrews 6, I want to go there too real quick. Make a flip over to Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Because I think it fits really well. And we're going to see it come up again. And I'm kind of taking you to these other passages like Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11, now Hebrews 6. And I'm doing that to show you that there is continuity in this conversation that keeps going. It's, it, he never really stops on this. He keeps going back to the same concepts here. Okay, Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. Somebody read that out loud for me. Okay, so that, is there a so that in there? So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, so again, what he's saying is he says you don't inherit the promises because you are faithful, but rather because you are faithful and, and diligent, you will have those. So the horse before the cart, the horse is justification. The rest of God that God provides that you and I did not work for, it's given to us by grace, right? But then in the rest of God, there's sanctification. And in sanctification, he says, don't be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith, and he's going to go in chapter 11 later and talk about all the men and women of faith. And the thing, and, and does, in any one of them, there's not even a reference to the fact that they, um, of their justification per se. But the emphasis in that chapter 11 is all about what they did. Abraham did this. Uh, jo- uh, by faith they did this. By faith they did that. By fa- Exactly. So it's about faith that's demonstrated through their action. So faith being justification, their action being their sanctification. So again, it's going to come up in chapter 11. So in chapter 6, he says then, if in fact, the way to encourage us is that, is that we endure, each one of you show in diligence. So as to realize. And diligence, what, do you, what does diligence conjure up in your mind? What is that saying about us? Okay, it's obedience, it's consistency, it's focus. To me, it really brings up that word determined. You know, you, it's a deliberate action on your part that you engage in on purpose, right? Okay, so um, encourage one another that, that we be diligent that we show diligence in our faith, diligence in obedience, diligence in walking with God in an honorable way so that you will realize the full assurance of your hope. Because if you're a person who's claiming to be a Christian but living like the devil, I can tell you that I, my observance of you would be, I'm questioning whether or not you really know the Lord or not. And that's an okay thing for me to do as a Christian. I should. I'm actually giving us freedom now to finally get back on board and say to 
to one another, I am my brother's keeper. And I am for the sake of their benefit, for their salvation, for their eternal glory, and for the rewards that they will either receive or fall short of because of the way that they're living out their life. All right, so that was in Hebrews 6, which we're going to get to later and do much more work on. I just wanted to bring that one up. Okay, now faith, in other words, is proven by our actions, correct? In chapter 11, faith is proven by faith is proven by actions. And I'm going to put on here Hebrews 11. So we're going to see it come up later. Examine your own life and what do you see? There you go. My next verse. James, <laughs> thank you. You are good. James chapter 2, verse 24 specifically says a man is justified by works. That doesn't mean he gets saved by works. It means he's proven to be actually saved by the fact that he's doing works okay it, it proves that he is faith without works is dead being by itself it is useless now what he's saying there is lip service to God is not what gets you into heaven there are passages in scripture that say there are many who will say unto me Lord Lord and I will say unto them I knew you not that's exactly right be gone from me being cast into everlasting darkness so you can give lip service all you want, but there better be a fruit of the Spirit that's evident in your life. And if, it's, and if, in fact, you have come into faith and you, for whatever reason, are not wanting to exhibit those fruits of the Spirit, you're not disciplining yourself. You're not being diligent to be faithful to God. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need to come alongside of you and rebuke you, encourage you, strengthen you, strengthen the feeble arms which are weak right? And so all of this is going to be continued to out in the book of Hebrews as we move forward. He's going to continue on this subject. Um, when, it, when you look about the first warning that there are some among you who are not of us, I thought about Jude chapter 12 where he teaches there are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. The love feasts making a reference basically to the Lord's communion that they take when they come together right? Uh, another one I thought of was in Matthew seven fifteen, where he says, um, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So they are among you. They've got on the outfit of a sheep and they're walking around among us saying, bah, bah. Right. and we're going, oh, look at there. He really loves the Lord. And look how, how eloquently he speaks and teaches. Some of these sheep, sadly, are our preachers and teachers in our classrooms. So what you have to do then is say, let me examine my own life first, but then I also need to be aware of the lives of people around me that I'm considering to follow. Do I see their life exhibiting godly qualities on the whole? Now, I'm not saying there are not momentary acts of sin for every one of us, so don't go there. But on the whole, is that person, is their life honoring the Lord? And do they make a confession of Christ? Do they order their lives according to God's commandments? Do they confess their own sins? Do they recognize sin when they see it, right? All right, so the, but there can be false prophets among us in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7 says. So First, 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 5 says what? Someone look that up, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 
And someone else look up Matthew 12, 33, just for fun. I want to hear those two verses quoted. We've got one more section to go through. And since we're not doing video today, we're going to have time. Okay. Uh, I think it's Matthew 12, 33. I hope. <laughs> That's what I wrote down. <laughs> and 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Who has that one? Second. And maybe it was supposed to be first, but we'll know when somebody looks it up. Okay, Brenda? Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Wow. Would you like that one or not? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves. And, he's, and it, by the way, if you fail that test, then Christ isn't even in you. So you have a test. I say the test, a great one for us simplicity-wise would be 1 John. Go through 1 John. Check, check the boxes as you go through there. Do you do those things? You have to be honest with yourself. But if you honestly say, yes, 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 then you are in the faith. That's the only thing you have to judge yourself by is what God's word says about how you can visibly examine a person's life. Obviously, then there's also the spirit of God. I can tell you, though, early in my faith walk, someone challenged me about my salvation and said, I don't think you are, that you are saved. And I got sick, literally physically sick for about three days. I was held up in my house, digging through scriptures, crying out to God, saying, well, what is it that I'm doing that they don't think that I'm a Christian? What is this about, right? And so through that, I spent a good deal of time examining, but the ultimate thing that brought me peace was what God's word says are the evidences. And all I can say at that point is put my hands up and say, number one, I have put my faith on Jesus Christ. I have believed the gospel of God. I have believed what God has said about who he is, what he's going to do, what he has done for me. And therefore, that faith that I say I believe on can only be examined through the evidences in my life. That's the only thing you have to go on. But if you do those two things, you have assurance. There is an assurance of your faith that should bring the peace. And it has for me now. Now I don't question that anymore. People can throw that question out right and left and it never makes me have this stabbing knife thing in the stomach where I'm just sick and I'm worried. I don't do that anymore. Because God has shown me my faith is not in Katie, what Katie does or how good she is. My faith is in Jesus, which takes us to our next point. Where is your rest? Jesus, right? All right, so we'll do this part... We'll do this part hopefully a uh, very quickly so you guys are not held over too long for those of you who need to go. We're going to look at where is our rest because we don't want to leave this room thinking it's all dependent on whether or not I'm doing, doing, doing. It, ha it is based first and foremost in what you believe. It, the rest of God is what God did from before the foundation of the world. By definition, in our review, we went back and we, we said, why did God give us this, the weekly Sabbath? Why was that given to the Hebrew nation? To, it was to teach them that all was done by God, by grace, from before the foundation of the world. It was all provided before anything began, before man took his first breath, before the earth was formed. God already had it all figured out. 
He planned for it. Grace, grace, it can't be you and I. Even though we have to hear the word, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And the scripture is very clear that you must hear it and believe it. But that doesn't make it your work. The work was finished according to even Hebrews chapter um, 4 verse 3 that it was finished from before the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the world. God had finished all his work. Okay, so it's by grace. He says, if, correct, correct? Let's look at all those if caveats and make a list on them and define them for us. If, he says, let us hold fast our confession. If we hold fast our confession, that's the first thing he tells us. That's in uh, 414, right? That's one of the caveats. When When we were looking here is, are you a partaker? Well, you are a partaker if you hold fast your confession, correct? So what is your question? What does it mean by the confession? What confession is it speaking of, correct? So, so by de- did anybody do a word study on the word confession? I know you weren't asked to, but, you, but, you know, it'd be nice. Confession. Pardon? Okay, that's exactly right. It's number 3671. Okay. And, and so it's an acknowledgement of what, of what one makes. Now, acknowledgement and confession about who? Who's our subject matter in the book of Hebrews? Jesus. So it's your confession about Jesus. Who is your confession? Our confession is Jesus. Now, what if, now we could stop at this point and make a whole list, but just randomly throw them out. In chapter 1, what do we know is true about Jesus? He is God. He is the Son of God. What else? He's the Creator. He's greater than the angels, greater than than all of His creation. And therefore, so if if we see our confession is Jesus, the Son of God, Creator, um, Lord was another one. But he actually calls him God in one of the verses. God, your throne endures forever, correct? So we see that's what our confession is, is that Jesus is God. Hebrews 10, 23 makes a really good quote later on. Hold fast the confession, confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And that is exactly what we've seen in chapters 3 and 4, that he is faithful as a son over God's house. So just put on there Hebrews 10.23 so that you validate that the confession is Jesus. All right? Now, he says, the clo- just following the rest of that before we go back to chapter 3, go, back, go on to verse 16. He tells us to do what in response to that confession? Therefore, what? Since Jesus is your confession, do what when you have trouble? Draw near to him, right? Let us draw near. Near to our confession, basically. Near to the throne. What kind of throne is it? Throne of grace. We're back to grace again. To receive mercy 
and to find and help in our time of need. Four sixteen. So I looked up the word "draw near" because I I thought that since he's telling us we need to draw near to that one that we confess, what is what does it mean to draw near? I mean, it's obvious, but still, I want to hear it. To approach it. Approach it. What else? When you approach that throne, what are you going to do when you arrive there? Okay, there's going to be a holiness, a holy attitude. You're going to reverence that which you approach, okay? A trust. Because if you're going to approach it, That implies that you're not worried you're going to get squashed when you show up, correct? You're approaching it with confidence, it says. And when you get there, what's going to happen between you and he? A dialogue, right? There's going to be an engagement and a relationship of conversation. So in all of this, it shows a trust, the evidence of your faith is that you do draw near. Your confidence to draw near to that throne is based on the fact that you've made a confession that he is God, that he loves you, that he forgave your sins. So even though you're needing to approach him because you have a sin going on or because you have a dilemma of a a conflict, something going on that you need help with, but you can approach him knowing that he's not going to annihilate you because of it, but rather he's there as a friend. I listened to a video, or was something that Celeste brought to me uh, or sent to me the other day about a man who has a visitation to heaven when he's a young child. And one of the, the, the pictures that he paints in there of, of his experience was he, he was um, with Jesus and they had done a variety of other things I won't tell you about. It's lengthy. But at one point, he gets into the water of the river of life with Jesus. And he says, uh, the uh, next thing he knows, Jesus picks him up and throws him and he dunks under the water. And he says, well, I'm an eight-year-old boy. So consider I'm thinking of this all from the perspective of an eight-year-old child. And he says, and I'm a little Oklahoma boy. What does a little Oklahoma boy do when somebody dunks him? You come up doing what? Splashing, right? So he tells the story of him coming up and splashing. And in the end of this, his conclusion is, he says, it was in that moment that God became my friend. Because a friend has a water fight with a friend. And on the perspective of a little eight-year-old boy, he said, before that, I had a relationship with God on other levels of believing him and loving him and respecting him. And, and, you know, he talks about when he first approaches the gate and sees Jesus, kind of this sense of awe and reverence and so forth. But at this point, now he's become a friend of God. Obviously, this man gets to come back to life. God brings him back, and he um, continues on life. He's a pastor now. So it's a really cool testimony of, about his experience. But it gives us a little glimpse in this moment of the idea of the approaching the throne of grace. Why? We can do it with confidence. Our confession is Jesus. Everything we know about him, that he loves us, right? He died for us. Therefore, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. You can confidently approach that grace. He is your friend. Right, which is another subject, but yes, absolutely. Well, it is, absolutely, and that's where he leads us into is the fact that he has taken on flesh of humanity, 
that he might understand, that we might know that he understands. He didn't have to do it for him to understand, but he did it so that we would know he understands. But he also, he did have to do it in order to shed blood to be the sacrifice for man. An animal's sacrifice was not sufficient. It's not on an equal standing or basis. He became a man so that he could die for man. He became man so he would have blood to shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. All of this was the, the planned rest that God get, had from the beginning. He planned it from before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Jesus is the plan. Okay, so we can draw near with confidence. I'll put that on here. Because he's our friend. Isn't that cool? Okay, so we're drawing near, approach, engage. Then um, in Hebrews 3.14, what does it say? Let me see. Let me go back to chapter 3. Oop, I'm in the wrong. Let me go over this way. 3.14, he, again, he says, um, oop, do I have the wrong one? Hold on a second. I'm looking for the word assurance. Okay, 14. 314, it should have been. Okay, so 314, we see that we are to have assurance, correct? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginnings of our assurance. So the, so the, the root of this is who is your assurance in? What is your assurance? How can you be confident to approach that throne? It's the assurance, right? So what does it mean to be, have assurance? It, it's that confidence. Con, okay, a conviction possibly. Okay. For God so loved me that he gave the, his only begotten son, right? That, that if I believe on him, I will have eternal life. So the confidence comes in. Therefore, what is, what is that confidence that results in, in assurance? And what is assurance? It's resting in the knowledge of truth. We're back to the word rest, the rest of God. It's rest. Assurance is rest. It's resting in who? In Jesus, in who Jesus is and what he has done, correct? Jesus is the rest of God. Believe that and enter. Jesus has promised through the heavenly calling. We see that in, in verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. There's a calling, a heavenly calling. In um, chapter 2, he set us free from what? By conquering death. He, from fear of death. So he set us free from fear of death and what about sin? And what about the devil? He set us free from the power of the devil and from the sin that binds us into slavery and from the fear of death. So that's the assurance we have. What were we so afraid of? All that, <laughs> right? Death, the devil, and our sinning. And we, we have great conviction over it. Most of us, just by... Um, 
natural daily ev events, we can do something and we catch ourselves and we go, oh my gosh, and you know it, that conviction that comes. Okay, let's go back to, oh, I see what I did. I started at the end. Let's go back to the beginning, okay? Um, my, hold fast to our confession. In, in chapter 3, verse 6, what are we to hold fast to? Okay, hold to my hope and, and to, what did you say the other one was? The conf Okay, so we hit the confidence, our confession, our confidence. Now let's go to the hope. So what is our hope? Our hope is Jesus. So if we are fixing our, our eyes on Jesus, the author and professor of our faith, or perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12, 2, then that is my hope because it's Jesus that I'm putting my hope in. I love this. Examine yourselves, encourage one another, and guess what? You can have absolute confidence to approach that throne of grace because it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He, he saves you by grace, he holds you by grace, and he will save you by grace. He will bring you into glorification. So the word hope is number 1680, joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. You can start with just the first part. It's joyful and confident expectation. But in the context of what we're talking about, it's expectation about eternal salvation. That's what's being talk, talked about here. So fix your eyes on Jesus. How about holding fast to the beginning of my assurance? So what began your assurance? What was the beginning of your assurance? Putting your faith in Jesus, believing according to chapter 1 who he is and other verses that follow. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11, again. How can we be sure that we will hold fast? Well, we looked at several verses. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10. We looked at Romans 8. What, what do we know about what, how are we assured that we're going to hold fast? It's not who, and it is who. It's not us. It's Jesus, right? So the assurance comes because what we're, what we're resting in, what is our hope and our confidence, what is our, our assurance, it's Jesus. So that's what's so cool about the rest of God. It's not us, it's Jesus. Therefore, you can rest. Yes. Again, you're back to that one verse we looked at where he's the foundation, right, of the building. Assurance, the steadfastness of mind, firmness, courage, resolution, confidence, firm trust. In time of need, then, we're going to draw near to Jesus, right, where you're going to find grace to help us in time of need. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? When you do have times of trial or times of temptation that come to you, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 10? 10, 13 is the verse I think you looked up. Say it again. Boldly come to the throne of grace with confidence. Yeah. 
There you go. That's exactly it. Okay, but you say that with a question in your mind. I'm thinking, okay, wait a second. How can you be sure that you're going to hold fast according to that verse? Who's going to do it? God, it says, he will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear. But he will provide for you a way of escape, right? So that you will endure it. You will stand up in it. You will have success in it. And it kind of opens up another possibility, another subject, which is what is the purpose to trials and temptations in our life then, right? What is God's plan in that? Obviously, we all have them. We have times of weakness. He makes mention of it here that we're going to, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and uh, therefore assurance but why, so why must we have these temptations and trials? And so that would be a whole other subject to go into. But First Corinthians says, irregardless of all the other information you find out about that, here's what you can know for absolute sure. God is not going to tempt you beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way of escape. He will make sure that you endure it. So how do you know if you're going to, he's, since the caveats are, are in the word if in chapter 3, you are his house if, you are his, a partaker of him if, how do you know the if in your life? How do you know if you can? Well, it all goes back to, it all goes back to what is your faith in? My assurance is Jesus. My confidence is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. It's not me. Therefore, I'm absolutely certain of it. He is faithful. I don't, even though I need to be faithful, as a result of what he's done for me, that's not what saved me. What saved me is the rest that God uh, demonstrated to us, that it was demonstrated to Israel through the Sabbath rest, through the land of rest. He's saying, it's my work I finished from before the foundation of the world, so it's not your work. And, and you enter it by faith, by believing that's true. Pretty cool. I love this passage. This was, this was a good lesson. <laughs> All right. Well, we're done, finally. I know that was a long one for everybody, but um, we just went a little bit, about 20 minutes over, but, because we're not going to have time for that video today. So, love it. We did good. And you have one more lesson, you guys, and it's 